Hi, everyone. We're going to start. Um, I'm Shailene. Welcome to Poetry and Conversation. Thank you so much for coming. Um, and we hope you'll come back again June 13th. We have Mary Azriel and Kendra Kapelke coming to talk about their poems and read from their poems and also talk about their journal, Passager. Um, then the next day, June 14th, we're having a special tribute to Lucille Clifton, down in the Central Hall, and a number of poets, including Nikki Giovanni, will be here for that. But now for tonight, which is very exciting. Um, the format for tonight is um, that Kathleen and I are going to introduce the poets, then they'll each read for a while, then we're going to have some conversation, Q&A, and then they'll each read a little bit again. Um, Stephen and Stephen Campa and Mary Jo Salter, our poets, have very kindly agreed to help introduce each other. Um, but before that happens, Kathleen and I are going to do a more standard introduction. Um, and I'm going to introduce Stephen. Stephen Kempfe has published poetry, critical prose, and reviews in journals such as the Southwest Review, Tampa Review, the Hopkins Review, Subtropics, Poetry Northwest, the Swanee Theological Review, and River Sticks. He is the winner of the 2011 River Sticks International Poetry Contest, and his first book, Cracks in the Invisible, won the Hollis Summers Poetry Prize and a Florida Book Awards Gold Medal in Poetry. He holds degrees from Carleton College and the Johns Hopkins University and has worked as a teacher and a musician. Stephen is a poet of paradoxes, darkly honest about the frailty of human relationships and the great blank where we would like God to be. He finally affirms faith in both love and divinity. His poems are a gorgeous banquet for the ear, yet they place their highest value on the unspoken. His vocabulary will send you running for the dictionary, but his heroes include unschooled people. Although his tone is usually cheerful and playful, it can be piercingly sad. A world as complex as ours calls for rich, complicated poems. Stephen Campa answers that need. And now Kathleen's going to introduce Mary Jo. Mary Jo Salter was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and grew up in Detroit and Baltimore. She is currently the Andrew W. Mellon Professor and co-chair of the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. She has won numerous awards for her six volumes of poems, including, which include Henry Purcell in Japan, Unfinished Painting, Sunday Skaters, A Kiss in Space, Open Shutters, and A Phone Call to the Future, New and Selected Poems. She has also published a children's book, The Moon Comes Home, and is co-editor of the fourth and fifth editions of the Norton Anthology of Poetry. She also edited the selected poems of Amy Clampett. Mary Jo's formally precise yet inventively playful poems illuminate the informal joys and precariously uncertain moments of which our lives are composed, as well as those larger events, themes, and creations that jolt us from the known world. On journeys via bus, train, plane, and boat, or through the farther reaching vehicles of imagination and memory, Miss Salter's penetrating gaze spies a mother's slap imprinting a future of expectations on a young son, the lucky innocence of a hand waving goodbye to a train, 
and the gasping beauty of two young lovers in a doorway. Her acute eye simultaneously turns inward so we may face our own slackness, cowardice, and collusions in the scenes we observe. The bracing clarity of Miss Salter's images and deaf linguistic control place a distant baby bottle in the night as no less significant and poignant than the blurry image of a kiss in space. Each equally reveal the unfathomable mystery of our lives as her formal arrangements pull us back from the precipice of loss and pain that is always lurking and hold back the leak somewhere, returning us to earth and our humanity. Give you Mary Jo Saunders. With great honor, I give you, Miss. <laughs> Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you so very much. Um, it is my happy uh, pleasure. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> uh, my happy pl pleasure to uh, introduce Stephen further, although Shailene did a beautiful job. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about, about my own connection with Stephen Campa. I, I've known Stephen for six years. It cheers me immensely to feel sure I will know him and read him for the rest of my life. He has an indispensable point of view, an outlook on the world and literature that has become a component of my own outlook, an actual and essential part of my brain, if not the hippocampus, then at least the Hopkins campus. <laughs> In the fall of 2006, he and I were both new to Hopkins. On paper, so to speak, I was his professor. Stephen was beginning his MFA studies, just a kid really, but not really, and already amazingly technically accomplished writer. Also astonishingly well-read. For the past six years, Stephen has given me as many reading assignments as I've given him, and I am not finished doing my homework. Stephen's a very funny poet, and yet often engaged with that most serious of questions, faith. It's a highly unusual combination. I can't think of any poet who more or better exemplifies that combination except for John Donne, and he died a while ago. Uh, like Donne and, and Marvel, and many of you will remember Andrew Marvel's very witty poem uh, to his coy mistress, Stephen often writes soulfully about his attempts, which he claims are unsuccessful at romantic conquest, or even, God help us, romantic oneness. The modest ratings he gives himself on this score and all others are a source of charm that never fades for me. A year ago, he sent me a little masterpiece that might serve as a typical compendium of his strengths. It's called Homer at Home, and in it, the great author of the Iliad and the Odyssey has a nagging wife. Would you or I have thought of this? According to Stevens, Homer's wife doesn't just nag, she hectors him. Her best friend is named Penelope, and that rhymes with elope. No, it rhymes with hope, but it looks as if Penelope and elope are rhymes. According to Stephen, getting hitched was poor Homer's Achilles heel. And that annoying marriage, it turns out, is the source of the first word Homer uses in the Iliad, rage. I repeat, who else but Stephen would have thought of this? There's punning all throughout Stephen's work, and often that wordplay is combined with other daring feats, rhymes between pun and pun that no one else would have thought of. He's a talented musician in real outside-of-poetry life. His instruments are the harmonica and the voice, and he brings musical riffs and metrical sophistication to every poem. These verbal and musical hijinks aren't merely clever, 
Quite often, a Stephen Campa poem ends with a note of heartbreak, an invitation to the reader to admit that he or she, too, is heartbroken by the world. And yet, and yet, no poem of Stephen's fails to praise the world. Certainly, reading Stephen's poems give me hope for the future of poetry, a world in a world that thinks it doesn't need it. Every poem he writes is at bottom both a prayer of praise and a prayer for divine guidance, and yet every poem is an answered prayer itself. Thank God, he makes us say, for poetry. Stephen. I want to thank everybody for being here and um, thank the library for inviting me and Shailene for coordinating everything and Mary Jo for an introduction uh, and Shailene for an introduction, both of which are are going to be more eloquent than anything I say at this point. Um, I I just feel very grateful and and humbled to be here. Um, I thought maybe it would be nice to start with a a poem about a movie, some place we could all uh, begin together. This poem is called Upon First Viewing Ball of Fire, which is an excellent film with Barbara Stanwyck, um, who kind of struck my fancy. Uh, so I thought we'd start there. Upon First Viewing Ball of Fire. Oh, Barbara Stanwyck, strike my fancy, stoke my fire, with one fell stroke revoke my self-control. Come be the dancing mistress of my soul. I'll never meet your like, now that most flicks require two topless shots for every minor role. You couched your sex appeal in what you could conceal, a trick that wildly trumps modern celebutants. Your smirk and three dry words could flood a room with oomph, with ah, with va-va-voom, to quote those 40s chumps. I guess a real man wants the panoramic rack and nipple zoom. I want the wit, the verve, and every subtle curve of your elaborate conversation. Steal my heart, toy with it, torch it, mesmerize me. Come, your slim hips swinging like a pendulum. And once, no, now, you've gone, let me play Krupa's part. Tapping drum boogie on a matchbox drum with greatest of his tricks, a pair of matchstick sticks. There's a wonderful scene in that movie where as Gene Krupa taps out drum boogie on a matchbox, uh, he scrapes the match along the emery board, never lighting it. And at the very end, uh, he lights the match and he and Barbara Stanwyck both blow it out, which I always think is... uh, a fitting place for that poem to sort of end. Um, A lot of people will ask, you know, where poems come from, and sometimes you just say, I have no idea. I don't know where that really came from. I think I was was having one of my days. Um, This poem, I know exactly where it came from. I was having a conversation with um, uh, a woman who had eventually become my ex-girlfriend, and she thanked me for my patience. And... um, I, I said this line to her and immediately said, I'm so sorry. I'm probably going to use that in a poem. And, and then I did. Um, this poem is called Patience. She thanks him for his patience and he pauses over the probably subconscious causes that she, so distant, 
chose this word to deal a compliment to him. She says she'll feel much better once she's home, but all he's heard is the explosion of that loaded word. It smolders like a single diamond set in an engagement ring. He can't forget, although by now perhaps he shouldn't care, that patience is a name for solitaire. This is probably where we should have begun because it's where all the fun starts, right? This poem is called Temptation. You haven't been detected. Nothing breaks the jungle's muggy silence but the shrug of branches where a silvery gibbon makes a flabbergasting leap. You kneel and tug the laces of your boots. You're well prepared. So far, so good. No tripwire deadfall traps have dropped to crush your skull. You can't be snared. With your next step, the ground beneath you snaps open, exposing poison-tipped bamboo pikes in a pit. Why would they need a guard? They knew you'd come to this. What perfect fakes. Their tra-la-la concealed a true delu, and you, bamboozled, duped, you take it hard, as only now you realize the stakes. And this to me seems like a natural follow-up to that poem. It's called After Grief. You're certain you've been hit, but keep on running. The pine trees' shadows stretch like iron bars. You feel dizzy and know you'll need your cunning to find fresh water and navigate by stars. Before night knits its blanket, you decide to check the wound. You crouch behind a rock. The opening is small. The blood has dried. You pry the bullet out. It starts to talk. Um, I think sometimes when you write poems, you do things that you... Uh, don't expect anyone else to notice or care about, and they may in fact not even be good things and maybe are things you're not supposed to do in a poem. Um, but in that poem about temptation, I have a silvery gibbon in there, and it pleases me immensely that the scientific name for this species is Hylobates moloch. And I love that I managed to slip in Moloch into this poem about temptation, sort of under the radar. It's the sort of thing that nobody else is going to care about. And I did it, and I, I get this little frisson of delight. I say, ha, 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 ha. I did that. I won that one. I, I didn't really, but it still, it still pleases me. Um, I think the other question you get asked a lot uh, when you write, I shouldn't say that like people ever ask me questions about writing, but the, the two times that it happened... Um, <laughs> Somebody asked me, so is that a true story? Um, the one that I'm thinking of in particular was I, I was doing a, a book group in Florida, and they were reading my book. And the only reason they were is because my former high school English teacher was in charge of the book group. And so he shanghaied all of them into, into reading this collection. And so I went and I talked with them about it. I was really grateful. And we did this poem, and, then they, and they said, so is that a true story? And I thought, oh, no. 
Um, I wish it were. It's called Being Undressed. The older girl next door has left his t-shirt hummocked on the floor, and he has never felt such tremors as her fingers at his belt. He's certain now he's caught her lunchtime stares, her clinking forks of thought. But when his mother knocks, the neighbor girl collects her sky-blue socks, kicks out the window screen, and wriggles through. What happened there between them, almost, dissipates more quickly than he'd wish. Although he waits an extra second after, he hears the broken china of her laughter. We never had awesome neighbors when I was growing up. I feel like that's the only real thing to say about that. Um, uh, Mary Jo mentioned that when it was my first term at Hopkins, it was also her first term at Hopkins. And um, that was a piece of good fortune that uh, I will never stop being thankful for. And one of the poems in this collection was one of the first poems that I wrote uh, as a part of a class for Mary Jo. I always think it's good to know that poems that a person may have started in a class can end up in a book. I think it's an encouragement to people who take creative writing classes. Um, and she, she liked it, for better or worse. She, at least she told me she liked it. She may now be embarrassed that I said that. Um, but I thought it might be fitting to read that poem um, just as a thank you for, for being my teacher. It's called An Anatomy of Autonomy. And it has two epigraphs, because I always feel like epigraphs are like potato chips or peanuts, you know what I mean? You just do one and then got to keep going. The first one is from Othello. It's, if I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. The other epigraph is from www.bluecrab.info. Blue crabs have the ability to sacrifice limbs called autotomy in order to avoid capture. Missing limbs are regrown by a process called regeneration. Bitter crab disease, BCD, is caused by a blood parasite, hematodinium parisii, a type of dinoflagellate. Let us now praise this sidling emblem of the circumotive ways we walk in love. When peril prods it nearer to dismay, its blurred pariapods carry away the crab whose guard commences with its gait, a sidestep not too hard to imitate. Observe it hide the tender commonplace of its sweet flesh inside a carapace, or show its dread of being firmly gripped by lifting a kiloped and brilliant-tipped kila, or halt intrepid predators with an abrupt assault. The crab prefers its privacy and will not be constrained. Sometimes we like to be likewise unchained. They're not all execrable links. Sook's mate just once, suggesting sex is worth the wait. The same cannot be said for Jimmy's, who without a seemly thought do whom they do. And in most cases, their mating cycles boast precopulatory embraces as well as post. One might concede during their lusty struggle even crustaceans need a decent snuggle, which would imply the worth of a caress did crabs not also die of bitterness. The crab's inimitable in one skill. 
If seized by any limb, a caught crab will, rather than lose its prized autonomy, inevitably choose autotomy and make a break for freedom, so to speak. So much for freedom's sake. But this technique we always leave to the crab, and with good cause, we much prefer to cleave to love by the claws. I think an undersung virtue of um, writing poems is that sometimes you get to be mean. And a mean poem can be a pleasant thing on its own. I probably shouldn't say that, but um, they can be kind of fun. Um, This poem is called The Reclamation of Paradise. There are certain things you tell your students never to do when you teach creative writing, like, uh, you know, uh, maybe don't ever say and then I woke up, or never put a kitten in anything you ever write. And one of the rules uh, I think that you should almost always follow is never write about butterflies. And, uh, and so I, decide, I've, I decided I needed to write about butterflies. And I thought, to make this palatable, we're going to make them spies. The butterflies' abrupt communique said all there was to say. They would no longer serve as go-betweens or act behind the scenes on our behalf. No stakeouts, hits, or raids. Palm-dappled Everglades would stay unmapped. The beehives' inner rooms would hum untapped, and blooms of ageratum, goldenrod, and clover were theirs now. It was over. We thought we'd had it all impeccably planned. We could not understand this metamorphosis, could not dissect their reasons to reject our glorious subversion. So we took a long, hard look at what we needed to succeed again, intelligence. And then we started out where all those leads begin. The net, the jar, the pin. I'd like to read one more poem um, for saying some things about Mary Jo and her work. And I thought it would be nice to read a poem from the project I'm working on now, which is called Bachelor Pad. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot of those poems uh, about uh, thinking about relationship. And uh, one of the primary, I mean, there are two big relational metaphors in the the Christian Bible, one is parent to child and one is bride to bridegroom. And it's sort of interesting to think about how parental relationships either shed light on what a divine and human relationship could look like or make you sort of think that we hope this is where the metaphor breaks down because if the divine human relationship is like that, this is going to be a disaster. And the same thing can be said for the romantic relationship in which you commit yourself to a partner that on the one hand, there's this sense of intense engagement with another human being. And in the other sense, there can be feelings of jealousy and anger and all sorts of complicated emotions. And so I like to think about how the metaphor of, uh, Um, relating to another person can either shed light on or maybe cause more confusion about the divine human relationship, if there is a divine human relationship. You know, I I sort of hope there is. Um, This poem is another garden poem, 
And I have a friend who uh, generously signed release forms all along the way and allowed me to use her name uh, within the poem. So I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, it's called Watering the Garden Till It Bursts Into Flame. Planting impatience, Charlotte portions out her plot's next spots to plants that complement impatience, also known as touch-me-nots. Me? Neighbor rung to hear her ring harangues, equally from her best friend's wedded bliss and weeds that blaze in lazy pyrotechnics across the lawn. I listen while I loosen the hose's brazen nozzle, Charlotte knows I'll tend to what she's planted, Mr. Handyman, misting fistfuls of the fitful flowers she forages and forgets until they wither. I diamond dust the lot of them with water and contemplate the weight of waiting, wanting, this winter into spring song sprung to mine while minding morning glories, mums, and blooms, rumored the kissing cousins of jewelweed, because I hope she finds her passions match in my fair share, share my fire, let every chore be tinder tendered to the flames for ages, charm me, sweet charlatan, please, charm me, Char." This sexiest of secret potions, patience. Um, when I was a, an undergraduate getting ready to go off and study poetry, there were only two people in the country I really wanted to learn from. Have I, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. Um, one was uh, Mary Jo Salter, who at that time taught at Mount Holyoke, which was not only strictly undergraduate, but also all girls, if I'm not mistaken. Are we right on this? And I thought, well, this poses two problems now for me going to work with Mary Jo Salter. The other person was Greg Williamson, who was at Hopkins. And so I thought, well, I'll apply to Hopkins and I'll, I'll see how that goes. And it turned out that when I got the call um, and was invited to come to that program, which I still think was one of the biggest mistakes they ever made, uh, they told me, Mary Jo Salter is going to be joining our faculty this fall. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. The only two people that I actually wanted to study with are going to be in the same place. And um, it proved to be um, a, a remarkable mentorship that became a remarkable friendship, something that I am grateful for all the time. The things that attracted me to Mary Jo's poetry, the things that, I was going to say the things that caught my ear, which is funny because the first thing I was going to say is Mary Jo has a remarkable ear. And sometimes she'll say, oh, I'm going to use the rhyme blank and blank. And I think, oh, envy is stirred within me because it's one that I wanted, I would have used if I were that good a writer. And she has a, a, a texture within lines, a music that is subtle and that um, until you listen to it out loud, which I hope everybody reads poems out loud to themselves and certainly Mary Jo's, or until you hear her read it or maybe read it for the fifth time on the page, you realize there is a music buried within this line that is so delicate and beautiful and I would, it, you have to pay attention. Um, the second thing that uh, as I was rereading her poems before coming up here to do this reading, uh, that I noticed was Mary Jo translates the stuff of a very recognizable daily life into um, scenes of importance and emotional resonance that I would not have expected 
from my daily life. She gives me a set of eyes that I need to see my life afresh. So one of the things we were talking about last evening was a poem that I like by her uh, that is about a magnet, her daughter made for her when she was a young girl, and how for so long it seemed to be a hand waving in greeting until it seems to be a hand waving goodbye as her daughter gets older. And then finally the magnet grows weak enough that the hand slides down the fridge, she says cinematically, like uh, the last grip of someone sliding down a rock face. And I thought this is such a perfect visual image And it says as much as I would ever hope to be able to say about that growing distance that you both feel is important as a parent, and yet that feels like a separation of some uh, almost disastrous proportions. Um, And that giving me back something that I've seen before and that I hadn't looked at quite that way is of utter importance to me as a as a person and then the third thing is that Mary Jo is just gifted with metaphor in a way I'll never be and even with at at the simple level of uh, a visual detail when she talks about hail hopping like popcorn popping in a pan in is that hail in Humfleur and I just think that is something that as soon as it is said I say yep that's exactly what it looks like and the play of hot popcorn against cold hail and the visual of the following uh, the falling against the rising these are the sorts of visual puns and analogs and attentions to detail that become metaphors and eventually become a sort of part of your internal landscape as a person who looks at the world and now sees it a different way um She's got a poem that begins, it's all an elaborate pun, and it's about a painting in which she details the ways that the visual analogs speak to each other. Another poem about Big Ben and the moon and seeing them in tandem. That kind of visual imagination is something that just doesn't occur to me. Apparently, I never open my eyes in the world. And one of the reasons I go to poetry, and specifically to Mary Jo's poems, is to see it all again the way I should have been seeing it all along if I were so gifted. Um, Would you welcome with me Mary Jo Salter? Well, this has just been so much fun. I already, obviously, I mean, how could that not be fun? Thank you so much, Stephen. That was lovely. Um, Wonderful reading. Um, I thought I would start with... um, a little tribute to May, since this is the second of May, and we think of maypoles and dancing. Um, uh, some of you may know the uh, the Morris dance, the medieval dance um, uh, that uh, is still being done in England, and in fact is um, still being done all in America and New England in particular. And I've always found this dance really quite irritating. So um, I'm going to start with that. A Morris Dance. Across the common, on a lovely May day in New England, I see and hear the Middle Ages drawing near, bells tinkling, pennants bright and gay, a parade of Morris dancers. One plucks a lute, one twirls a cape. Up close, a lifted pinafore exposes cellulite and more. Oh, why aren't they in better shape? the middle-aged Morris dancers. Already it's not hard to guess their treasurer, her, their president, him, 
the Wednesday night meetings at the gym. They ought to practice more or less, the middle-aged Morris dancers. Short-winded troubadours and pages, milkmaids with osteoporosis. What really makes me so morose is how they can't admit their ages, the middle-aged Morris dancers. Watching them gambling and tripping on maypole ribbons like leashed dogs, then landing thunderously on clogs, I have to say I feel like skipping the middle-aged Morris dancers. Yet bunions and receding gums have humbled me. I know my station as a member of their generation. Maybe they'd let me play the drums, the middle-aged Morris dancers. Here's a little poem, uh, uh, also uh, in part about age, um, but really about the accumulation of experience. This is called Mr. X. By the time you're 40, you've met so many people, their features fall in place as little bits from other people, like the identikits that victims piece together with the police. The felon is memory, which takes a face and slices up what once was very simple. People you loved, the waiter you saw every week without seeing, arresting strangers reassemble years later in other faces and belong convincingly there as if they were unique and innocent of how they make you tremble with remembering or forgetting. I was wrong, Mr. X, whose cheekbones I recall from somewhere and that funny, slightly cross-eyed, quizzical look you shot me on the sole occasion we met, to assume you must have lost someone who looked like me. And yet I stared longingly at you as you disappeared. Uh, Turns out that a young lady I know is having her bat mitzvah this weekend, and um, I wrote a poem for her when she was born, uh, so I thought I would read that. Um, she is the only person I have ever met who was literally born in a service elevator. I don't even know anyone who was born in a passenger elevator. But um, the, um, as you'll hear, she uh, was born in New York City. And um, I knew when I heard that this had happened um, that I would have to write a poem about it, but I, I didn't know what, what I would do with it until suddenly the title occurred to me, Deliveries Only. I mean, that's what they always say, you know, on the service elevator. So this is Deliveries Only for Sarah Marjorie Lyon, born in a service ele- elevator. Your whole life long, you'll dine out on the same questions. In your building, on what floor? Was it going up or down? They'll need the precise location 79th and Lex, as if learning it could shield them from the consequences of sex. Wasn't your mother a doctor? Didn't she talk him through how to do it? And then you'll tell them how your father delivered you, that only after your birth did he think to reach in her bag and dial 911. He held you up like a phone and was taught how to cut the cord. What about proper hygiene? When did the ambulance come? Waiting, you were the, wailing, you were the siren, squalling in a rage behind the old-fashioned mesh of the elevator door, a lion cub in her cage. Didn't your parents worry? Hadn't they done Lamaze? But you'll only shrug at your story. That was the way it was. 
Stephen uh, mentioned a poem about a magnet, and, and I thought I would read that. It was a challenge, actually, that, uh, that I took upon myself because um, a, a poet uh, named Alfred Korn wrote a wonderful poem called Self-Portrait with Refrigerator Magnets. And the point was, you can tell a lot about people from their refrigerator magnets. Mine have all of the missayings of George Bush on them, uh, on it. But there is also still this magnet, um, uh, which I think will be self-explanatory, a magnet. Since she was two, it had held up her end on the door of the fridge, a plywood magnet stamped with the finger-painted imprint of her hand. Essence of kid, all cheerfulness in a pure nursery red, it stood for her signature and seemed back then to raise itself in greeting. When was it, was it that it started to say goodbye? I meant to say wave. I'm going to say that again. When was it that it started to wave goodbye? One day, some sort of scrap it had always kept in lofty view, report card, shopping list, snapshot of somebody's new baby, slipped with it cinematically down the door like a climber's grip, failing along a rock face. Demagnetized, of course, by the very years that made her real hands strong. I've placed it high, supporting nothing weightier than itself, Against that time, I'd sense in me a fainter grasp on the little girl who never crossed the street without my finger in her fist. Here's a new poem, yet unpublished. Uh, I thought this whole grouping of poems are essentially in some way about stages of life, and this is one I remember, a period I remember vividly, but did not participate in directly. Um, it's called Common Room 1970, and um, my brother was born in 1951 and um, had to draw, draw his number for the, for the Vietnam draft. Um, but this is actually this, a story that a friend who was also born in 1951 told me. So it's Common Room 1970, and it begins um, with uh, uh, an epigraph from the Book of Mark, and Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. It was the age of sit-ins, and in any case, there weren't enough chairs. The guys loped heavy-footed down the stairs or raced each other to the bottom, laughing, pushing their luck. But here they all crammed in, sophomores, born like him in 51, to huddle on the floor of the common room. In a corner, a grandfather clock startled the hour, hammered it home again. He would remember that. The old New England rickety dignity of the furniture. The eminent, stern faces looking down from time-discolored portraits. Or maybe some of this was embellishment added later on. The flickering, thick fishbowl of a TV screen, a Magnavox console, silenced them all. There, in black and white, gray-haired men in gray suits now began to pull blue capsules from an actual fishbowl. At least the announcer said they were bright blue. It was the age of drugs. These looked like giant quaaludes handed out by a mad pharmacist whose grimly poised assistant, female, sexless, then unscrewed from each a poisonous slip of sticky paper. A man affixed that date to a massive chart. 
It was filling up already. Some poor dude named Bert was seven. He punched a sofa cushion. As for himself, he thought of penny candy in a jar a million years ago, picked out with his brother most days after school, or times he'd draw tin soldiers from the bottom of a stocking. Born two days past Christmas, he'd always seen that as good karma, the whole world free to play. A congressman was rifling loudly through capsules, seized some in his fist, dropped all but one. Not Jeremy, good friend, socked with fifteen. Two strangers, thirty-eight. Ben got one-twenty. Would that be good enough? Curses, bluster, unfunny humor, crossed fingers for blessed numbers that remained. Somewhere, sometime in that ammunition pile awaited his, two-thirty-nine. He heard the number whiz, then lodge safe as a bullet in his brain. Like a bullet in a dream. You're dead. You're fine. No need to wish for CO or 4F. Oh, thank you, Jesus God. No nom for him. Yet he was well brought up. In decency, rather than dance for joy or call up mom right then from the hallway phone, he stayed until the last guy knew his fate. Typical Roy, who'd showed up late, freaked out when it appeared his birthday got no mention. He hadn't heard. They'd hosed him. Number two. Before the war was lost some four years later, a handful in that room would battle inside fish bowls, most in color, and little men, toy soldiers in a jungle, bled behind the glass while those excused, life-sized, would sit before it eating dinner. He'd lived to be a watcher, and number two in the common room that day, clearly not stupid. Roy became a major in independent projects, Something about landscapes in oil, angles of northern sun. By the time he graduated, he had won a grant to paint two years in England, where, so his proposal went, the light was different. Another stage of life. This is for my father. is called erasers. As punishment, my father said, the nuns would send him and the others out to the schoolyard with the day's erasers. Punishment? The pounding symphony of padded symbols clapped together at arm's length overhead, a snow of vanished alphabets and numbers powdering their noses until they sneezed and laughed out loud at last was more than remedy. It was reward for all the hours they'd sat without a word, except for passing notes, and straight, or near enough, in front of starched black and white Sister Martha, like a conductor raising high her chalk baton, the only one who got to talk. Whatever did she teach them? And what became of all those other boys, poor sinners, who had made a joyful noise? My father likes to think, at 75, not of the white-on-black chalkboard from whose crumbled negative those days were never printed, but of word clouds where unrecorded voices gladly forgot themselves, and that he still can say so, though all the lessons, most of the names, and he doesn't spell this out, it must be half the boys themselves 
who grew up and dispersed as soldiers, husbands, fathers, now are dust. Um, Well, there were some reflections on words, at least on letters, in that poem, and I thought I would read uh, a little bit more about reading itself. Um, This one is called Midsummer Georgia Avenue, and I thought, especially since we're in a library, a little bit about reading, and um, imagine yourself on a porch looking across the road. Happiness, a high, wide porch, white columns crowned by the crepe paper party hats of hibiscus, a rocking chair, iced tea, a book, an afternoon in late July to read it or read the middle of it, having leisure to mark the place and enter it tomorrow just as you left it, knock-knock of woodpecker keeping yesterday's time, cicadas buzz, the turning of another page, and somewhere a question raised and dropped, the pendulum swing of a wind chime. Back and forth, the rocker and the reading eye, and isn't half your jittery, odd joy the looking out now and again across the road to where, under the lush alleys of long-lived trees, conferring shade and breeze on those who feel none of it, a hundred stories stand confined, each to their single page of stone. Not far the distance between you and them. A breath, a heartbeat dropped, a word in your two-faced book that invites you to its party only to sadden you when it's over. And so you stay on your teetering perch, you move and go nowhere, gazing past the heat-struck street that split down the middle, not to put too fine a point on it by a double yellow line. Here's a little poem, um, except I forgot to mark it, so I'll skip that one. Um, I'll I'll read two others, and then I gather that we are going to have a conversation, and then uh, Stephen and I will answer questions or answer each other's questions. Um, So these are both, again, um, new and not, they're in a book that is yet to be published. Um, This is partly about reading. it's called the gods, and that is the expression the British use, and I think some Americans use, for being way, way up high in the concert hall. And it's where you you see all the all the stuff that you wouldn't see if you had the good seats. And you're seeing the values and the names that matter to the architect or to the builder. So that's part of what's going on here. Um, and... Uh, I think it's it, it sneakily became a, po- a poem of, that was sort of a feminist poem, which I wasn't expecting I was writing. Anyway, it's called The Gods. I always seem to have tickets in the third or fourth balcony, a perch for irony, a circle of hell the Brits tend to call The Gods, and peer down from a tier of that empyrean at some tuxedoed insect scrabbling on a piano. Some nights there is a concerto and ranks of sound amass until it's raining upward, violin bows for lightning from a black thundercloud. 
a railing has been installed precisely at eye level, which leads the gaze frustrated still higher to the vault of the gilt-encrusted ceiling, where a vaguely understood fresco that must be good shows nymphs or angels wrapped in windswept drapery. Inscribed like the gray curls around the distant bald spot of the eminent conductor, great names, Da Vinci, Plato, Whittier, Debussy, form one long signature, fascinatingly random, at the marble base of the dome. It's more the well-fed gods of philanthropy who seem enshrined in all their funny, decent, noble, wrong postulates, and who haunt these pillared concert halls, the tinkling foyers strung with chandeliered ideals, having selected which dated virtues, courage, honor, brotherhood, raided chiseling into stone having been quite sure that virtue was a thing all men sought, the sublime a mode subliminally fostered by mentioning monumentally. All men. Never a woman's name, of course, although off-shoulder pulchritude gets featured overhead, and abstractions you might go to women for, like beauty, justice, liberty. Yet at the intermission, I generally descend the spiral stairs unjustly for a costly, vacant seat I haven't paid for. Tonight, I've slipped into D9. The lights dim, warm applause, and after a thrilling pause, some stiff-necked vanities for a moment float away. All the gorgeous, nameless, shifting discordances of the world cry aloud. Aloud at last, I close my eyes. And then I'll finish with a poem that was actually in the Hopkins Review. Um, and um, this takes us even higher than the gods in the, uh, in the um, concert hall. We are now in an airplane, and you will recognize the speaker and the personality of the speaker right away. It's called Over and Out. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Those of you on the left side of the aisle surely have spotted on this fine 4th of July fireworks erupting all around the city, pockets of color. Ooh, baby, look at that. From 30,000 feet, you never hear the pop-pop when they open. No, they seem to blossom in the dark, in suspended silence, to dilate and fill like delicate parachutes descending with curious tautness until at last they safely resolve to a shimmer of memory that lingers like stars, then truly disappears. Or that's what I'm seeing. Excuse the poetry. Sometimes I get carried away up here. I've left the seatbelt sign illuminated, and though we expect no turbulence weather-wise, I'll ask you not to move about the cabin unless you have to. The truth is we're in trouble. Those of you on the right side may have noted a funny rumble. That's not the fireworks, folks. I'm going to get this plane down the best I can. I bet you'd trade in every one of your frequent flyer points for the real-life parachutes we lack on this particular budget aircraft. Wouldn't it be divine if we all drifted to terra firma, guided as if by winged angels, angels in party-colored ballooning silks? Instead, I'm duty-bound to propose that you gather up not your personal belongings, but any final reflections you may feel will comfort you. Naturally, you hate being reminded your fate is in the hands of faceless authority, that is, me, but my advice is 
try to rise above that. You should have had a third little flask of scotch, some of you are thinking. Some of you gals are wishing our steward, Keith, in business class, so handsome, were available for a few minutes anyway. Triumphant sex with strangers as the fireworks fade forever, the dizzy thrill of the end, that dream would only come true in the pathetic paperbacks you brought on board. Real terror, let me tell you, is no aphrodisiac. How stupidly you lined up for this trip. How much you cared who was pre-boarded first, or whether Misty, our blonde in coach, would start from the front or back when she rolled out her little tinkling cart of snack boxes, which, although not fit for a dog, you paid for meekly and with the exact change. Let's be frank. This flight is headed for your longest vacation. Tonight, the only gates we'll taxi to are pearly. No connection to the party raging on down there without us. It's far too late to squander precious seconds resenting my sadly true banalities, my jocular despair, my loud phoned-in philosophy no button can switch off. I understand, though. You'd like a little peace before the eternal one. Well, here you are. Spend your last moments in big-hearted hope we're going to hurt nobody on the ground. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, both of you. This is such a pleasure to listen to you. Um, so now we're going to have just a few questions. Um, I guess um, if our poets would like to come up to the um, chairs at the front. Um, and then after the questions, we'll, we'll hopefully have a, a few closing poems, too. Um, but would anyone like to ask... Oh, I forgot to explain. Um, we are, we're recording this event um, for podcast. Um, that's just the sound. So um, if you have a question, if you, we, if you could say it into the mic, and we have a, a mic. Lisa's going to shuttle it around. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and she will bring you the mic. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah, don't be, don't be shy. It's, it's just your voice that's being recorded. Maybe I, I can start us, I can break the ice by asking a question. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious uh, what advice you would give to someone who is an aspiring poet. What do you think is the best way to learn to become a poet? If you could each... I would say one of the things that Stephen said, which involves reading poetry aloud, really hearing it, don't just read it on the page. And the other is very close related, closely related to that, which is just read, 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 and that, that doesn't mean just poetry, that doesn't mean just aloud. But I do think that for writers, um, writing is, is engendered just as much, if not more, by literature than anything else. For writers, literature is in part life. It's not all of life, but it is a big part of your experience. And we all have interesting experiences. The key is somehow to use words to get them across. And so I'm not just saying this because I'm in a library. It's really what do you think? So I need to answer that after that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I was going to say... Um, 
musicians learn by practicing their their scales, and I do think there's a lot to be said for learning to do some of the things that historically poets have been able to do, whether it be work within the confines of line and meter, learn how to tell a narrative in a way that um, is going to engage an audience, so that at a later time, when you decide you can dispense with those techniques, you know what you're doing and why, and you can break the rules effectively. And so I really feel that uh, whatever, however you define your scales and learning your chord progressions, or however you define going into the museum and sitting in front of a famous painting and duplicating it, whatever that practice means, um, you do need to do it at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no shortcut for, for that. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask while we have the editor of the Norton Anthology here um, what you think makes a poem or perhaps a poet uh, canonical um, um, a deadline um, you know you're, you're told that you have, to, <laughs> you have to figure it out by March 23rd and so here's your table of contents you know basically um it is, you can imagine how um, humbling uh, it is to be, it, for, it, to, to be in the position of even thinking that you could come up with something, some list that would be canonical. And especially since the, the work I did on the North Anthology was all 19th and 20th century, um, so that the dust, the dust really has to settle with the 20th century. And the last time I edited that, edited that book, um, the the um, youngest person in the book um, is he was born in 1965. Um, in one way, that's that's even too soon, and yet in another way, all sorts of people people who were born in 1985 were writing things that are better than you know. We just we can't predict. Um, partly, this is direct. The question the the ways that editors make such decisions is based on the, the function of the book. And that book, The North Anthology of Poetry, is fairly rare in being available in the trade section of the bookstore and also being a textbook. It's primarily, the primary sales are as a textbook. So very often we would get letters from professors or, or high school teachers or whatever saying, you know, I know that's a really good poem by Amy Houseman, but I'd rather have the other one because it works so well with this other thing. Mm -hmm. And we did consider that. And so, for example, there are, there are paired poems that, you know, a, a, a poem of Mark Strand's that I chose to put in there. I love the poem, but it was partly because it was, it was an explicit answer to all scenes. That sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you recognize that even though that page, that book is 2,000 pages long, that it not only shows the, um, the, the, the extreme fallibilities of the three editors, but it also suggests um, all sorts of, um, all sorts of, as I say, marketing concerns. Um, the book sells more in Canada than in some other countries, so you've got more Canadian poets. To some extent, that's true, too. But ultimately, it's just it's your best stab at that question, and you expect to be wrong about a lot. And mainly, what you do is, you, I just regret tremendously that I couldn't put more people in, that the book would literally fall apart, because there's so many poets I wanted to write, did not, wasn't able to put in that book. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, well, well uh, I'm curious because you said poets being born in 1985. So who is the youngest poet you can think of right now who should be read and isn't being read? Well, you for one. I mean, I don't remember when you were born, but... Um, um, okay. Um, you know, I think that you know, a, a number of the poets who uh, I read when I'm reading applications for MFA programs, now at this point, those people were born around 1988, 89, mm -hmm. 90. Um, some of them are already showing you know, a kind of talent that um, if they nurture it and they're lucky and they read and, you know, they might turn out to be really remarkable. Um, uh, who do I want to name who is both known and unknown? It's sort of a hard question, but, uh, but honestly, truly, I'm not saying this because I have some of my students in the room. I do think that there are people I'm reading who were born in the late 80s and up to 1990 who are writing things that I, I not only admire, I'm envious of. You have some thoughts? You probably know younger poets than I do. Actually, I was thinking about the whole question of, of uh, constructing a canon. And um, there's a good side to that and a bad side. Um, the bad side is that it seems like there are a set of poets handed down that you have to like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's unfortunate because you may not like them, and that's okay. That doesn't mean you can't learn anything from them, but um, this notion that there is an infallible set of writers that we are obligated to enjoy is different um, than saying there are writers we can learn from. And I think there's a great uh, a need to construct a personal canon, right? That for yes. me, Albert Goldbarth is an indispensable poet. I love Albert Goldbarth. There are people who are gonna say, boy, you're stupid. You like Albert Goldbarth? But I, for me, he is, he is somebody that I need to read. And I think that creation of a personal canon is every bit as important as being very familiar with perhaps the more established. Yes, the, Does that make sense? I, yeah, and I think the connection, uh, when you said uh, personal canon, that also related uh, to a common expression, the ideal reader. And, and usually when we use that expression, we're thinking of you know the unknown person out there who just loves poetry and gets what you're trying to do. And that is true. But I also would say that my ideal re readers are the dead greats who will never read me. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are sort of, they're my audience. If, mm -hmm. if I can write a poem that I think James Merrill wouldn't have found laughably bad, then, <laughs> then I, I feel um, encouraged. Of course, it's interesting when you can pat yourself on the back because the person isn't there yeah. to say that they like the poem. I don't just think my idea of somebody who likes me, whether or not I write well at all. They just oh, like me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> 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 I think that, that's our mother. I can't um, resist asking um, what other writers you would put in your personal canons. I mean, I, I know there would be a huge list, but maybe um, if you had to pick just a few poets that you think without whom you simply maybe wouldn't even have become the poet that you are, who would, which poets would you name? 
or writers maybe, not just poets. That, yes, and I'm glad you expanded that because I think, you know, sometimes it is outside of one's own main genre. Um, indispensable poets, to me, Stephen and I were just talking about Emily Dickinson. I simply wouldn't be <laughs> myself mm. if she weren't in my brain. You know, um, I feel that way about Richard Wilbur, who's still 91 or two, still writing. Um, W.H. Allen, certainly, uh, Elizabeth Bishop, uh, Milton. I mean, I'm, I'm dra you know, dragging from all periods, but, you know, what's it like to be writing poetry if you haven't read Milton? I, I mean, you can't ever, ever, ever get there, but he's got to be, in, in my head, sort of, and I agree with what, uh, what Stephen said about it. it. To some degree, it doesn't matter whether I like Albert Goldbarth as long as that's important for Stephen. And, um, but uh, those would be some. And Anthony Hack, I don't know if I mentioned him. He's also really mm -hmm. essential to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I would definitely yeah, reiterate Albert Goldbarth. Arthur Z, uh, whose last name is S-Z-E, is a really fantastic poet um, who, who's not as well known. And I have, I, I've liked his work for quite a while. Recently, I've, I've fallen in love with Heather McHugh whose relationship to the language is so fascinating, and she just disassembles it and reassembles it right in front of you. And then I talk about somebody very young who I think if we were gonna, if we were gonna go ahead and make some bold and entirely unprovable claims, somebody I think is absolutely gonna be read uh, X number of years from now. I think Daniel Groves, Dan Groves yeah. is somebody people are gonna be reading. He, he, he makes magic happen, and he's only uh, published one book at this time, and the saddest part is he doesn't need to publish anything else. You know what I mean? He's like, he's, we're, I'm going to be catching up with Angro's first book for the rest of my life. It's very good. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he now owes me $10 for the send of this podcast. Like, I should add someone else in my own generation, and I was teaching her this semester, Gertrude Schnackenberg. If you don't know her work, mm -hmm. she is, I just think she's just a master. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, well, wait, uh, if um, you are willing, I'd lo we'd love to have a few more poems from each of you, so, and then we'll close. Thank you. Sure, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to read it from right here, and I'm only going to read one more poem, um, but it's 20 pages long. <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned that I'm doing this project um, Yeah, talking, <laughs> talking and holding the microphone will probably, probably prove too, you know what I mean? too much for me. Yeah, um, I'm working on a project called Bachelor Pad, uh, and what I like about it is, uh, I mean, I never met a pun I did not love. I mean, even the worst pun you've ever heard in your entire life is a pun I want to cook a meal with, sit down, and have a long conversation. <laughs> and so Bachelor Pad was, I couldn't, I couldn't stay away from that as being um, uh, a poem about a guy, not me, who goes out places alone and writes down things about the people he sees. Um, because people do funny things in public places, they really do. There's sometimes the censor um, that should be present and saying, no, don't shout. I have that transmittable disease into your cell phone, never shows up, and people just shout it into their cell phones. Um, or they fight, you know, people have 
fights in public. And Alan Shapiro has this great poem where there's a couple who seem to be getting progressively angrier at each other. And finally the woman says, no, Harry, it's not the, it's not the egg rolls, it's the last 10 years. <laughs> and I just think, oh my god, you dream of hearing that in a public place. So I wrote this poem about a guy who goes out and he, he sort of notes these things. The only word, I mean, there are a couple of words that probably would be useful to um, say something about, but the only one I really want to say anything about, because I think it's so spectacular, is pan-sophic, which is somebody who possesses sort of encyclopedic knowledge, you know, pan-sophic coming from all and wisdom as, as its roots. And I think, what better way to describe people who are walking out of a bar at 2 a.m. than pan-sophic? Because at that moment, we just know everything. So um, this poem is called Bachelor. He took it with him everywhere he went, the small green notebook with the lock. He wanted to compile a permanent log of pillow talk, endearments, jokes, evasions, gentle lies and not-so-gentle ones, mute clock-watching, brisk whispers, shrugs, outbursts, and sighs from every argument couples engaged in right before his eyes. He had decided on nothing with designs, a notebook unbedrecked or jeweled. As for the paper, some folks wanted lines, but he preferred unruled. He'd riffle through a paperback for cover, hoping he had the barroom full, just reading, while his ballpoint pen would hover to catch whatever wines or whiskeys might elicit from a lover. Soon couples stumbled out, and Sophic sloshed, and night stacked up. He'd head for home, and there, amidst the mismatched forks, unwashed boxers, and styrofoam go-boxes seeping in the fridge, he'd think of an enormous marbled comb, brown, empty glass, blue, soap, tan, matchstick, pink, yellow, and brush, brown, squashed inside and thereby dwarfing a rinky-dink apartment too much like the one he had. Magritte had called it personal values but could have called it bachelor pad, for all that it was full of looming objects. Eerie, bulksome, sly. He worried that he lived his whole life in his notebook, and he wondered why that didn't seem so bad. Sometimes the room looked more like open sky. Often he'd scan his notes as though they formed a star chart, score, or recipe, an atlas of lands battered and distormed, or an anatomy textbook where all one body is read. And whether lost in bodily desire on lush paths, in rhapsodies of dread or soups he barely warmed, he hummed his praise for starlight overhead. His notebook boggled. Proverbs, quips, wish lists, points, counterpoints, elan, chagrin, everything from the televangelists, single begins with sin. But so the same he couldn't help include. To Tillich's key distinction in a timely sermon. For days we brink and brood, our loneliness exists. For hours of glory, we have our solitude. O oh, fond Farago, book of quadrupeds, you awful gallimantry, plumb full of hysterias, careless ariettes, you solemn omnium gatherum of God's wisdom, so tease ye of teasing bits bit tease, you come down to this question. Will love's gets outweigh love's quad erat regrets? And how to answer that, he couldn't say. But from that blitz and clutter, 
his helter-skelter homage, she prized a single image, a couple, thick rain, a tiki bar for shelter. The girlfriend stared at him, her boyfriend, blabbering as he chased a Benny with vodka, bar-wise to the brim, as though he were wishing well. And when he paused, somewhere in the welter of copper wishes, she sought her lonely penny. He couldn't judge the lovers with their cosmos and appletinis, none of them. Men numb with maxims, women lost in cosmos, dog-eared with stratagem. He loved the whole damn lot, since he could see the grounds from which their longings stem. Forces as grave, expansive, dark, and free as anywhere a cosmos begins in utter singularity. Big and slow as ovens. 
Now the reporter's running with a cell phone larger than his head, if you count the antenna. They're Martians, all of these people, perhaps the strangest being the most recent. I bought that phone. I thought it was so modern. Phones shrinking year by year, as stealthily as children growing. Three. It's the end of the world. Or people are managing after the conflagration, after the epidemic, the global thaw. Everyone's stunned. Nobody combs his hair. Or it's a century later, and although New York is gone, and love, and everyone is a robot or a clone or some combination, you have to admire the technology of the future. When you want to call somebody, you just think it. Your dreams are filmed without a camera. You can scroll through the actual things that happened, and nobody disagrees. No memory, no point of view, none of it necessary. Past the time when the standard thing to say is that no matter what, the human endures. That whatever humans make of themselves is therefore human. Past the transitional time when humanity as we know it was there to say that. Past the time we meant what, but were wrong. It's less than that, not anymore a concept. Past the time when warning was a concept. Of course, such a projection, however much I believe it, is sentimental. Belief being sentimental. The thought of a woman born in the fictional 50s. That's what I mean. We were Martians. Nothing stranger than our patience, our humanity, inhumanity. Our worrying about robots. Earplugs, cell phones that make us seem to be walking about like loonies talking to ourselves. Perhaps we are. All of it was so quaint, and I was there. Poetry was there. We tried to write it. Thank you so much, um, Mary Jo and Stephen. That was really beautiful. I mean, wonderful experience. Um, and everyone, and the, their books are on sale in the back of the room. And also at the back, I think on that table over there, we have some evaluations if um, wouldn't mind filling those out. Um, they ask for those. Um, and also in the comments. Um, and also we have a sign-up sheet at the back for any other poetry readings, programs, workshops that we may have in the future. So if you would like to receive those, and you would only receive those, you wouldn't get every single Pratt email that goes out. So we would you know, welcome it if you'd want to sign up. And thank you, everyone, for coming. And thank you again, Mary Jo and Stephen, for a wonderful evening. <laughs>